table for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from Revelation chapter 9, verses 17 through 21. I'll be reading in Spanish, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. Así vi en la visión a los caballos y a sus jinetes. Tenían coraza de color rojo encendido, púrpura, amarillo y como azufre. La cabeza de los caballos era como de león, y por la boca echaban fuego, humo y azufre. La tercera parte de la humanidad murió a causa de tres plagas de fuego, humo y azufre que salían de la boca de los caballos. Es que el poder de los caballos radicaba en su boca, en su cola, pues sus colas semejantes a serpientes tenían cabezas como las que hacían daño. El resto de la humanidad, los que no murieron a causa de estas plagas, tampoco se arrepintieron de sus malas acciones, ni, de, ni dejaron de adorar a los demonios y a los ídolos de oro, plata, bronce, piedra y madera, los cuales no pueden ver, ni oír, ni caminar. Tampoco se arrepintieron de sus asesinatos, ni de sus artes mágicas, inmoral, inmoralidad sexual y robos. This is God's word. Good morning, church. Um, children are dismissed from Children's Church, as you see. Reminder to parents to pick them up either right before or right after you take communion. There we go. Now we're on. If I've never met you before, uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church. We are, whoa, here we go. Oh, am, I, am I on? Am I off? What are, what's going on here? Something, something's happening. All right, all right. All right, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church. Good to see all of you. Kids are being dismissed for Children's Church. What's up, my friend? Um, <laughs> Hi, what's up, buddy? Good to see you, Emmanuel. They're going to Children's Church. Parents will pick them up right before or after they take communion. We're preaching Revelation, uh, and we're right in the middle of a series, well, kind of at the beginning of it. Uh, if you're thinking Revelation is very intense, it continues to get intense in some of the things we're going to be seeing in the coming chapters. Uh, if uh, you're feeling that intensity a little bit, you get a little bit of a break next week for Easter Sunday. We'll take a break from Revelation. I thought really deep and hard about what I should preach on next week. I'm, I'm going with resurrection uh, is what we'll be preaching about next week. So that'll be uh, the emphasis. And then in a couple weeks, we'll get back into uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, because of that, we're going to be between a, a section that uh, last week I, I preached about seven uh, seals that uh, is this vision that John has of uh, God and Christ breaking the seals from the scroll that's unfolding God's plan. And we preached all of them. And this, uh, this Sunday, we're looking at uh, trumpets, seven trumpets that were blown by angels and that usher in all these types of events and the, the vision. And it's a longer section, so we're going to do uh, the first six trumpets is what we're looking at for this Sunday. And then in two Sundays, uh, we're going to look at this long interlude that's uh, in, in chapters 10 and 11, right before the seventh trumpet is blown. Uh, so we're going to spend a couple weeks on this uh, just because there's a lot there uh, to check out. Uh, just to preface this a little bit, especially if you're just jumping into Revelation and trying to wrap your mind around what we're trying to do here, 
uh, we're trying to preach this in a, such a way that you really take away the theology of each one of these visions. There's so much debate, as I've been saying, about whether these events have taken place, whether they're taking place right now, whether they'll take place in the future. Regardless, the theological messages are pretty similar, and even those that interpret Revelation as being something that primarily takes place in the future would say that it has application and relevance for today. And one of the big things that this type of literature called apocalyptic literature does in the Bible is that it tries to give saints of all ages the ability to unmask some of the realities that's happening in your present day in light of what God is doing in history and especially how he's going to wrap up history. And because of that, you have very similar themes and things going throughout all the visions. For example, the series of seven trumpets is similar to the seven seals because they're showing things like God's sovereignty over all things. There's an interlude again between the sixth and the seventh thing that happens. And all of these uh, series of seven ultimately end with God's judgment. But the seven trumpets are also a continuation of the seven seals because they're showing how God is answering the prayers of God's people that were occurring during the seven seal sequence. Those prayers are asking emphasis. The seven seals are all about answering the questions, how long can somebody stand when God unleashes this justice? And how are, go how are these people that are sealed and kept from God, uh, kept for God, going to endure in this time of suffering? And so there's this distinction that's made, there's a continuation that's happening in these different visions, and there's similarities that are happening too. So they're all very, very unique uh, and, and very, very distinct at the same time. So that all to say, there's a lot going on in the six trumpets that we're going to check out, so we're gonna need some prayer. Let's go ahead and pause and pray uh, for this time. Maybe my mic that will keep on and being consistent. We'll see what happens. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this gathering of people, and thank you for your grace that has brought them here, this power that opened their hearts to the message of repentance and faith in your gospel and uh, how your son shed his blood to cleanse sinners from sin and rescue them from death. May your Holy Spirit now open our eyes and our hearts to what your word has to say to see the world as you see it, to unmask the realities of this world so that we can see it through your lens. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was this time that I got uh, this ongoing opportunity to mentor an international student from McAllister, a Chinese student from McAllister, who eventually got baptized here at Trinity City Church uh, on our 10th anniversary Sunday. It was a great celebration, and one of the joys that I got to have throughout his time at McAllister was to serve as a mentor for him. And we met at the Caribou right on Snelling across from uh, McAllister one Sunday, and we were just talking about things that Christians talk about. We are talking about the Bible and theology and church. He was mentioning how he was in this Bible study on campus where he was this, he was the Protestant in the Bible study and there was a Catholic that went there and uh, also an Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox person and they were all from different countries and it was just this, it was like a setup to like a religious joke, right? I mean, it was just like this, this interesting way that God has bring, brought people from, from all over the world together in his gospel and we were just talking about these things 
And there was a gentleman that I saw right next to us that was really eavesdropping, like kind of uncomfortably so. He's looking at us, and he's just like, oh, bro, like, you want, you want to accept Jesus? Like, what's going on? Like, why are you listening to us? And so I, you know, acknowledged that and started a conversation with this older gentleman. And it turns out that he was a professor at one of the universities around here, and he taught religion. And then his specialty is uh, a theology of universalism, was what he taught. Uh, and if you don't know what universalism is, it's this belief that in the end, when God wraps up history, everybody's going to be saved. There's no, there's no hell for people, there's no judgment and experience of God's wrath, because in the end, everybody will experience God's grace. I disagreed with Dr. Universalist, okay? So we had, we had differences, and I talked about how uh, that's not... Uh, what I uh, believe, and uh, you know, quite frankly, most Christians don't believe this too. So he, he and I started dialoguing about that, and he was interested in why uh, I didn't buy universalism. I quoted a, another theologian named um, Miroslav Wolf, who writes about these things, especially in a book called um, Exclusion and Embrace, and he gives three reasons why uh, why universalism isn't true. And these are the ones I shared with Dr. Universalist. I said, well, in the scriptures and Christian theology, we acknowledge that not everybody repents and turns to God's grace. We also see a reason that, uh, that God's justice and wrath still comes is that not all evil self-destructs. Some of it gets stronger, and so therefore God's mighty justice and power needs to confront this evil and destroy it. And the third reason is that if uh, uh, that is that heaven would not be a world of love if there are in heaven those that didn't repent from their sins and they're sitting next to those that they have victimized by their, uh, by their evil and their sin. So those were my three reasons. Uh, he, I didn't convert him to a more orthodox position there on the spot. He shared his opinion on why uh, 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 universalism is true and, and even to this day I didn't quite buy it because I didn't understand it. I think you needed a PhD to understand the complexities of his argument. Uh, but nonetheless, there we were in Caribou uh, talking about such things. I don't know what you do in Caribou, but this is what happens when the pastor shows up there, I guess. <laughs> and so one of the points that I made in that conversation was that not everybody repents and turns to God's grace, and that's why God's judgment is still needed and real. And this sermon is really going to look at how this part of these six trumpets that are blown during this vision that John has really shows the reality behind that point, that not everybody repents and turns to God's grace. Some continue stubbornly in idolatry, and that's a big theological concept you need to understand what's going on in this vision. Uh, the answer to question 17 in the New City Catechism defines idolatry. It's this. Why don't we say this together, that answer part. Say this together with me. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. That's what idolatry is. You trust in created things rather than your creator and you make Good things, ultimate things, that you find your hope and happiness and security in things that God has made rather than God himself. And when we get caught up on this type of framework, uh, it becomes rather destructive. And if somebody clings to idols and doesn't trust the creator, what the gospel says is you need to repent and turn away from this way 
in this way that leads to death and turn to God's grace. And we know that many do this. Christians are a living testimony of a life of repentance, that we've not only done this once significantly when we turn to faith for the first time, but the way of life for Christians is the way of repentance. We continue to turn from our idols and back to God's grace. But we also know that some do not repent and turn away from their idols. And God eventually judges those that do not repent. And when he does that, is God just in doing so, judging those who don't repent? Don't they just need more time or God needs to get their attention somehow? If, that, if he was able to do that, then surely they would repent. And these were some of the things that me and Dr. Universalist were talking about. Maybe they just need more time and God needs to give them more opportunity. And this vision answers these types of questions. So let's see what happens to those who are stubbornly committed to their idols, even when they have everything around them dismantled, and even the evil that's behind their idols are unleashed. Let's look first at these uh, first four trumpets and the dismantling of creation. Look at Revelation 8, 6 through 7 with me. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down to the earth, and a third of the earth was burnt up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Trumpets, as I mentioned before in uh, the book of Revelation, make announcements. And here the announcement is God's judgment is coming to those who oppose him and oppose his People. I used to play trumpet, by the way, in fourth grade, and none of this ever happened when I played that instrument. I only played for a year, and the only reason I, I, I mentioned this is that this didn't even give me some type of expertise to understand everything that's going on when each one of these trumpets are blown. There's intense things that happen with every one of these uh, trumpets are blown by these angels, and these things start to unfold. And here, this first trumpet unleashes a combination of plagues on those who oppose God and his people. You have hail, you have fire, you have blood that all symbolize God's judgment on the earth. And the fire of God's judgment is something that's going to be repeated with each one of these trumpets that are blown. And God's judgment burns up a third of the earth, the trees and the grass, and the one-third shows how these judgments are being more intense than the previous vision when these seals are being broke. Only then, one-fourth of the earth is impacted. And here you have one-third, an intensifying of God's judgment and justice. Yet, not everything is impacted, but it is also show that, showing that God is limiting the devastation of his judgment. On to the next trumpet, verses 8 through 9. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea is turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this huge mountain that's set on fire is thrown into the sea, and a third of everything turns into blood, which is referencing some Old Testament imagery here. People see different things in the symbolism of this fiery mountain. Some see just uh, creation being disrupted, a volcano maybe erupting. Others point to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah where God calls the kingdom of Babylon a destroying mountain that God is going to burn up in judgment. And in Revelation, you're going to see this a little bit. Babylon represents everything that is opposed to God, every power, every kingdom that's opposed to God. So maybe here God is dismantling kingdoms. 
Regardless, more is impacted by God's judgment. More is impacted, especially with the sea, the life within the sea, the ships on top of the sea. They're all destroyed, and the significant blow to resources and commerce is happening to those that oppose God and his people. Earth and sea are now impacted. What is next? Let's look at the next trumpet, verses 10 through 11. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. This, again, is the fires of God's judgment, and they continue to burn. This time, there's a blazing star falling from the sky, and some again just see a disruption of creation, maybe a meteor, uh, and more of the symbolism of creation unraveling. Others see the star as symbolizing angelic beings that are in rebellion against God. Again, regardless, things are happening, and even the star has a name. The star's name is Wormwood, which is an odd thing. Like, what is wormwood? To me, like, if you don't know any Old Testament background, it just sounds like an invasive species, right? Like, ever heard of jumping worm that's happening in our city right now? You can't even bring sod to some of the organic waste sites anymore because they're worried about jumping worm, and wormwood kind of has that same ring to it. But wormwood in the Old Testament is not an invasive species, but rather this shrub that's known for being really bitter and making water extremely bitter as well. So if wormwood is like tea in fresh water, then the flavor, it, flavor of it produces such bitterness that it can even lead to death in this symbolism. In the Old Testament, bitterness symbolizes sorrow and suffering that happens as a result of God's judgment. For example, in Jeremiah, the religious leaders polluted God's people with idolatry, so now God is polluting their way of life with the bitterness of his judgment. That's what Wormwood is getting at here. And so with this trumpet, the bitterness is so intense that it even leads to death for some. And now the fourth trumpet sounds. Verse 12, the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and the third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon, a third of the stars, a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Here we have one third of sun, moon, and stars turning dark. All the sources of light just got darker. And darkness in the Old Testament is symbolic of spiritual and mental and cultural darkness that results from idolatry. And we kind of get this to a certain degree being Minnesotans, like living through what we're still living through, winter. The dark nights of winter and like basically hail, snow, and whatever else is coming from the sky, always uh, falling down as we even experienced the other day. And we know that even like this type of darkness has an impact on uh, what it means to be a human being. And like you get tired and you just want to go to bed earlier and maybe you're less motivated. And those kind of things that we as human beings have categories for have point to a spiritual reality of darkness that happens when God's judgment comes too. And that has a darkness that affects us spiritually, mentally, and culturally as the darkness grows as God's judgment is unleashed. Now, this is what's happening, putting this all together. What's the picture now that at least four trumpets have been blown by these angels? We have a third of the world 
that has been burned, bloodied, embittered, and darkened. And everything that these people that are in rebellion against God, everything that they are depending on is now shaking. Their resources, their economic security, and their own mental and spiritual well-being are no longer things that they can rely on anymore. That's the picture that's being painted in this vision. And if you're attuned to Old Testament stories, there should be a very specific Old Testament story that should be coming to your mind right about now. Does anything sound familiar in what has happening in this vision and revelation that has already happened before in a similar way in the Old Testament? And if you're thinking about the book of Exodus, you're on the right track. That was another time in the Bible where hail came from heaven, water turned into blood, and the dark sky, or the sky turned dark, in order to turn a stubborn heart away from idols to doing what God is asking him to do. That is the book of Exodus, a time in history where God raised up a prophet and a leader who served as his spokesman, and God gave this man named Moses a mission to set his people free from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And the leader of Egypt is Pharaoh. And Moses goes to demand freedom of God's people from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is so stubborn that it takes ten plagues for him to finally change his mind and let God's people go. Some of those plagues include turning a river into blood, hail falling from the sky, darkness spreading over the land. Other plagues overwhelmed the land with frogs and gnats and flies and locusts, which that's another uh, piece of imagery that's going to come here later. And these plagues not only undid the Egyptian way of life and, their, and the things that their society depended on, but it also exposed their so-called gods behind the water, behind agriculture, the gods of sun and, sun and moon and stars, and revealed that these idols and these gods are utterly worthless. But as we know throughout these plagues, Pharaoh's heart got harder. And it essentially raises the same questions we're dealing with right now. What will it take for Pharaoh to repent? That is, turn away from his stubbornness and listen to God and let God's people go. And is God just in judging Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Keep these things in mind because they continue to come up with these uh, trumpets as they're blown. But before we get to the next two, check out verse 13 with me. And as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. In Revelation, when a flying creature shows up, it means really bad things are about to happen. And he announces that by calling these woes, which is an old school word for really, really bad things. Will they be enough to get the attention of those caught up in Babylon and this rebellion against God and his people? Let's see what happens. Look at Revelation 9, 1 through 5. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them 
for five months. All right, what's going on here, brothers and sisters? There's a little bit of debate about if the falling star symbolizes this rebellious angel or just one of God's heavenly agents carrying out his will. Regardless, we see that the angel unleashes something really terrible. He opens the abyss, which is the realm of the wicked, and it opens up like a smoky furnace, or if you have a uh, uh, wood-burning fireplace at your house, it's like opening the door of that, and smoke comes billowing out, and smoke in the scriptures symbolizes deception and blindness. Once again, things get darker as these demonic beings are released that look like locusts that have the power of scorpions. And Jesus in the Gospel of Luke refers to demons as scorpions, and some of that imagery is being drawn up here. Now, verses 7 through 11 go on to give more details of of this just truly terrifying description of what these beings look like. Here's just an example of that in verses 7 through 8. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like a woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. Now, if this profile popped up on a dating website, you would swipe left. Like, this is a truly terrifying picture. It's locusts, it's horse, it's women's hair, it's lion's teeth. Like, this is truly an awful thing that that one would see. And the, the the symbolism is getting at a bunch of different things. These evil beings are fast like horses, ferocious like lions, intelligent like humans, and are ready for battle like a warrior on a chariot. That's what all this imagery is supposed to be bringing up. Verse 11 even says that this this demonic hive coming out of the abyss is led by a king who is called a destroyer. Now the locusts in Exodus, if you remember that reference again, destroy vegetation, but these demons don't harm any plants or trees, but rather other other human beings. The faith and souls of God's people, it says, those that are sealed, and that's language from last week's sermon, they're off limits. But those that oppose God and his people are the ones who are targeted by these demonic beings. And God places limits on what they can do. Not only is their time limited, but they cannot harm the lives of those in rebellion against God, at least not yet. But they will experience this torturous agony And here is how Revelation 9, 5 through 6 describes that agony. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Here is a picture of the very beings behind their idols now unleashing unspeakable evil and torture on those that gave them their allegiance. They desired the destruction of those who turned from them, and they want to pull them as close to death as they can. And the spiritual, mental, and physical suffering endured is described in some of the most intense ways. Their idolatrous sin is destroying them, but not to the point of repentance. They still refuse to repent. They leave God, but their despair never leaves them. Their tortured souls seek death, yet they're too afraid to die. This is a truly awful description of how evil idolatry is and how it seeks our destruction. And there is truly no hope in a life that turns away from God like this. So what about the second woe or the the sixth trumpet? Will that finally be the thing 
that gets them to repent. Look at verses 12 through 16. The first woe is past, the other two woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It is said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops were twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. This altar imagery reminds us that these trumpets are again responding to the prayers of God's people who have suffered at the hands of those that oppose him, and they're asking for God's justice. And these four angels who have been waiting for this exact time release complete destruction from the great river Euphrates. Again, this is symbolizing something in the Old Testament because from the area where the Euphrates is in the Old Testament comes these multiple kingdoms that came out of this region in order to destroy great empires. And so that's what's happening here. And this destruction is described as innumerable troops. The army is described in verse 17 in similar ways of, of the demon hive that was described in previous verses, yet they are different in what they're able to do. In the previous trumpet, they can torment those that oppose God, and here it's far worse. Revelation 9, 18 says, a third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths, the mouths of this demonic uh, army. Now they're given the power not only to torment but to torment to the point of death. And death here doesn't just serve as a release from suffering, but a release into spiritual and everlasting suffering under God's judgment. The evil powers behind their idols of this world always have had this as their ultimate aim, to pull humanity away from life and into death. And God alone is the one who restrains this destruction until it comes time when he allows those who are, are, are just wrapped up in their idolatry and refuse to repent, that he allows them to reap the full consequences of what they sow. And like the last plague in the book of Egypt, which saw an angel of death take the firstborn in the land of Egypt, so too the sixth trumpet includes death. Only God's people who sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, only they are sealed by God and their firstborn kids are spared when the angel of death passes over them. And here, in a similar way, when the sixth trumpet is sounded, those sealed by the blood of the Lamb are spared, but those that do not have the seal of God are not. So now, these people who are caught up in idolatry see all this take place. They see how their world and everything they depend on, the things that they depend on in creation, rather the creator, it's all unraveled, and then they see behind their idolatry this truly despicable evil that is trying to use their idols to pull them towards death, and they see some of their, their fellow man who have, have refused to repent pulled into death, but they're still alive, and now it raises the question, if you have seen all of that, do you finally repent? before God's ultimate justice comes. Revelation 9, 20 through 21 answers, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and, and, and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. 
idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murderers, their magic arts, and the sexual immorality or their thefts. They did not repent. And like their idols, they turn into their idols. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't walk. And so they continue to ignore the call of repentance and continue to follow the ways of these demonic powers that are leading them right into death. In the book of Exodus, uh, the 10th plague breaks the Egyptians to the point of finally letting God's people go free. But if you remember that story, not to the point of repentance. Pharaoh still did not repent even after the 10th plague when all the firstborn in Egypt died. They still did not repent because Pharaoh raises up an army to rush after God's people to take them back into slavery. And in doing so, what happens at the end? They're swallowed up by God's judgment through the Red Sea, drowning them. The same thing is happening here because after this long interlude that we will hear about in a couple of weeks in chapters 10 and 11, the final trumpet is blown and the ultimate judgment of God comes because, and here's the point, not everyone repents and turns to God's grace, but they only grow more stubborn and lead them and continue to lead themselves on a path to death and God's judgment. So in two weeks, we're going to look at this longer interlude. We're going to be reminded during that time that John is commissioned to write down these visions, and these visions include this bittersweet plan of God, bitter to those caught up in idolatry, but sweet for those covered by the blood of the Lamb and sealed by God's promises. We also get to meet these two witnesses who are called to preach repentance, even if they suffer for doing so. And no amount of suffering or even death, it will, it will say in these, in these chapters, will take out those who are sealed by God's blood, God's blood in Christ and also called to bear witness to the gospel. So let's get to a conclusion here. Where does this leave us? This is a very happy sermon. I get it, right? I mean, I'm sure you're very encouraged by this point, right? Because you just saw a vision where people are caught up in their idols, the idols of unbelievers, and it's unmasked for what it is, especially how it causes us to, to be more stubborn against God and even leading ourselves to a heart that never repents. And it's showing us that when God's judgment comes, it is indeed just. But here's the deal. Our calling is not to remain silent even as we trust God's plan of justice and judgment on the world. Our job like the witnesses you're going to be introduced to in the next couple chapters, our job is to proclaim the gospel. Our job is to ask those that are caught up in these things to repent and to turn. And even though we know that not everybody repents, we also know what? That some people do. You did, because you heard the gospel from gospel witnesses who told it to you. And that is our calling is to preach the gospel, call people to repent, and to bear testimony to the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. I was reminded of this calling to bear witness after seeing a pretty good film this week called uh, Jesus Revolution. If you know me, I'm pretty critical of Christian films. I've said some kind of salty things over the years about uh, films starring Kirk Cameron and all that type of stuff. 
This one, on the other end, I would recommend it. It was a great film. It was really good. Uh, highly recommend it. And if you're not familiar with the film, it's, it's a fictional story that actually is still uh, highlighting something that actually happened in history and some real individuals that were a part of this. Jesus' Revolution documents a revival that ha happened in American history during the late 1960s. And one of the scenes of the movie really stuck out to me. One of the most instrumental people during this time is this complex character named Lonnie Frisbee. And he is a Christian who looks like Jesus and acts like a hippie. That's the character. Uh, in fact, it's the same actor who plays Jesus in The Chosen, if you're familiar with that. And he looks exactly the same in this film. Like, it's wild. Like, he looks just like how many people think about Jesus looking, right? And so he's this character playing Lonnie Frisbee, who's this like evangelist that's also a hippie, and he's known for being able to reach this Woodstock generation with the gospel in a unique and powerful way. There's another character named Greg in the film, and Greg, earlier in the movie, uh, he turns to this hippie movement for meaning and purpose because of his own brokenness of his life and the things that he is uh, is going through in his home life and he's looking for love and he's looking for truth and he hopes to find it in this live free message of the 60s that includes drugs as, a, as an instrument uh, of self-discovery. That was part of what was going on culturally that you would do drugs in order to discover things about yourself and about the world. But this way of life for Greg leads to a destructive and deadly path. Some in his friend group nearly die from an overdose, and Greg is caught up in this scene when he's riding in the van that looks like the mystery van from Scooby-Doo, and he's riding in this thing, and the drivers are high, and he's high, and they're carelessly getting close to accident after accident, and Greg feels like death is chasing him, and he's freaking out, and he finally gets out of the van, and he goes out into... Uh, uh, in, into uh, the street and it's raining out and it's dark which also has its own type of symbolism because he's trying to run away from all this self-destruction in his life but he can't get away and at one point in this scene he's looking at this foggy car window and he sees the word die on it it's a really powerful moment of this film because it just symbolizes this is the path that he's on and all of these idols that he's chasing, are, and he's feeling it with, with his, this like, uh, stone-induced reality that he has. He feels that everything's after him, and they want to kill him. So he sees die on the window in the rain and in the dark. But then after seeing this message, he turns and sees this Jesus-like hippie just chilling out in the rain, sitting on the sidewalk, cross-legged, I don't know, praying, meditating. He's just, it's Lonnie, and he's just sitting there, and, 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 and this is a, uh, him hallucinating. Greg really sees real-life Lonnie just hanging out out in the rain, and what happens is Lonnie just preaches the gospel to him, says that Jesus is after him, and he loves him, that he can turn away from this stuff and get grace, that he can turn away from these things that are trying to destroy him and come to Christ who, would try, who offers us life. Greg isn't converted on the spot. He hears Lonnie preach again, and he goes to church with some of his friends, and, but eventually he is baptized, and he believes and he repents from this destructive pathway. And this reminds us again of our calling, even in light of a vision like this that shows that God is just when he judges those that don't repent. Our job is to trust God with the judgment and bear witness 
to the gospel. Because not, not only do we know, not, we know that not everybody repents, but many people do. And it is a beautiful thing when somebody dis- that turns away from that destructive path back to the gospel and they are now covered by the blood of the Lamb so that death passes over them and they're brought into resurrected life. They, they join Christians on stuff like Palm Sunday where we wave branches like those in heaven to symbolize our victory that we have in Christ and we participate in declaring our new life in the waters of baptism where the old self has died and the new self is raised again. God will judge justly. Rest in that, Christian, and preach the gospel to everybody you encounter.